From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Renabizumab and Uveitic CMA. We want to be particularly aggressive with treatment since we really think that the longer it, it uh, persists, the, the higher the consequences are. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Uveitis is a pathology of inference. Long after the observable inflammation has been suppressed, vision-limiting sequelae may persist. The most serious of these is chronic macular edema. But if the inflammation is no longer present, with what medication should the recalcitrant CME be treated? Anti-VEGF agents have been successful in treating macular edema in other clinical contexts. Why not here? Well, one reason may be that neovascularization does not play a large role in uveitis. But on the other hand, as Tevia says on Fiddler on the Roof, there is no other hand. Will anti-VEGF agents work here as well? My guest today, Nisha Acharya, asked this question, and I'm happy to have her answer it for us today. Nisha Acharya, welcome to a scene from here. How important is CME in patients with chronic uveitis? Well, I think, you know, there are not any large studies to really say exactly how many patients are afflicted by CME, um, specifically in uveitis, but we do think that CME is the most common cause of vision loss and of legal blindness in uveitis patients. There have been a couple of studies that have tried to look at how important a problem this is. I think one of the largest is the paper by Rotova et al., and they looked at a large cross-sectional survey of 581 patients, and they found that a third of patients had significant macular edema at some point during their course. Does the CME typically subside once the ocular inflammation is controlled? So I think that really depends. Again, you know, given that uveitis is a relatively uh, small field, there haven't been that many studies looking at exactly how many patients have CME and how many of them have resolution. But I, I will say that for most uveitis specialists, including myself, I think that um, we, we try to always be aggressive about controlling inflammation because we believe that's the best way to treat CME, but we do see that in many cases, you know, we are able to just treat the CME by controlling inflammation, so I would agree with your statement that it does typically subside when you control the inflammation. However, you know, the focus of my research that we're going to talk about today and something that I see commonly in a referral practice is there's definitely a subset of patients who have persistent macular edema, even though all visible inflammation has been controlled. 
and that's a particularly difficult uh, group of patients to care for because you've done everything you can uh, within reason to control their inflammation, and they still have still have persistent macular edema. Prior to your study, how had uveitic CME been treated? So there's no guidelines on how to treat uveitic CME, but I can comment on what on what I. I did, and also what I think most other ophthalmologists in the field or uveitis specialists have been doing. So I think for most of us, including myself, some form of steroids have been the mainstay of our therapy. Um, And we use all forms. So I commonly use oral steroids or periocular. I I prefer to do a subtenons injection, um, also intravitreal steroid injections. Um, And in some cases have used steroid implants, um, which are approved for uveitis and macular edema. Um, There's other options that I've used less commonly, although I will try in certain cases. And uh, those include topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, oral acetazolamide, Um, and so that's pretty much what I've used. Um, I can just say that in the field, there are a couple of other um, small case series of groups that have tried other treatments, but those are only in very small numbers of patients. Some of those options include uh, octreotide, which is a somatostatin analog, um, interferon alpha, and also small case uh, series on intravitreal bevacizumab has been tried. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention is that I think the role of vitrectomy surgery has been really controversial for uveitic CME. Um, there have been some studies looking at this, but there's not been convincing evidence that that doing a vitrectomy really helps. I mean, there's some evidence in support of it, and there's some evidence not. So I I would say currently it's equivocal, but I have seen it work in some of my patients. Sometimes we have tried that. At what point is uveitic CME judged to be persistent? That's to say, at what point is therapeutic intervention beyond topical steroids or non-steroidals warranted? So I, I think that's a, I think that's a judgment call. So you know, in my opinion, I think that uveitic macular edema is often fairly severe and associated with vision loss, which is sometimes not the case with. Um, transient macular edema after, say, routine cataract surgery. Um, so I think in our population of uveitic, patient, um, uh, uveitic patients with macular edema, we want to be particularly aggressive with treatment since we really think that the longer it, it, it uh, persists, the, the higher the consequences are. I don't think that the role of topical steroids and topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is well-defined for uveitic macular edema. I will say that I I do try those treatments for mild cases and maybe give it up to a month. But if there is no response or if the edema is moderate to severe to uh, begin with, I may use those treatments, but I often will do them in conjunction with starting therapy such as a steroid injection. Nisha, how does uveitis produce CME? That's, that's a great question, and I will say that I, I don't have, you know, the answer. That's an area of hot research and interest in the field, um, and, and I think the more that we learn about immunology and uveitis and the cytokines that are involved, the more we understand 
but we really, really don't know for sure. So the thought is, and again, this is just at a, at a thought level at, at this point, studies have shown, and this is both from animal models and some human studies, that in general we think that macular edema in uveitis is due to increased vascular permeability. And the question is, why do you have that? And in uveitis, you have a lot of inflammatory cytokines around, and that's been well studied. And now that we have all of these different um, ways of doing immunoassays and fluid from the eye, we know that certain cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, are elevated in the setting of uveitis, such as interleukin-6 for instance. Um, and we think that some of these cytokines, especially IL-6, may induce the production of VEGF, a vascular endothelial a growth factor. We, and, and so we think it's probably this whole cascade of different inflammatory cytokines that then lead to increased VEGF uh, production. And VEGF increases vascular permeability, and hence we see macular edema. So studies definitely have shown both um, experimental autoimmune uveitis, which is an animal model of uveitis, and also studies where they've looked at the aqueous of patients with uveitis who have macular edema and those who don't have macular edema, and they have found that the level of some of these inflammatory cytokines, including IL-6 and VEGF, are elevated. So we think it's just the underlying inflammatory process that is the inciting factor and that eventually leads to increased production of uh, VEGF. Nisha, I'm sure that the great majority of listeners to this podcast know exactly what ranibizumab is. But for completeness, can I get you to describe its structure and its effect? Yes, sure. I'd be happy to. Okay, so ranibizumab is a recombinant humanized monoclonal antibody fragment. So it's not a full antibody. It's a fragment part of the antibody. Um, and it binds, so it neutralizes by binding all active forms of vascular endothelial growth factor A, which is, um, as we just mentioned, a diffusible cytokine that promotes both angiogenesis and vascular permeability. So where bevacizumab, which is a, which is a full monoclonal antibody, um, well, the way that that differs from ranibizumab is that ranibizumab is a very small fragment, but it still binds vascular endothelial a growth factor. It's also, um, it's gone through a process of affinity maturation, so it's supposed to have greater affinity for binding VEGF than the full monoclonal antibody. Nisha, what question did your study seek to answer? Right. So, you know, this study was really a proof-of-concept study, and it came about because, um, you know, in my UBI's practice, I, I, it's a referral practice, and a lot of patients come in with tough problems. And we've been seeing a number of patients who had persistent macular edema in the setting of having had uveitis. And really, we thought that, you know, there weren't that many interesting options. Well, we had the standard sort of therapies for them. And then as information came out about ranibizumab and how it was pretty successful in other indications um, and how it targeted VEGF, that, along with our knowledge from uveitis and the fact that VEGF is elevated in macular edema in uveitis, we thought it made sense to, to see if ranibizumab would potentially have an effect. 
Now, you know, it had not been looked at before, so this was really a proof-of-concept study because we, we didn't know if it was going to have an effect or not. So we wanted to do a small study just to look to see if, um, if, uh, if uh, ranibizumab uh, would have any benefit in terms of both visual acuity and resolution of macular edema in a group of patients with uveitis, with controlled uveitis, with persistent cystoid macular edema. Nisha, can I get you to describe the design of your study? Okay, so so this was an open-label, well, it was a prospective study first. So it was planned in advance, and we had to get all the necessarily approvals um, and get informed consent. This was a prospective study. But it was open-label, meaning that it was non-comparative. So all eligible patients um, could participate in the study, and they would all get the medicine. So it's, I would say it's a prospective, non-comparative, open-label study. What were your inclusion criteria? So we, we did have an age limit. We, we wanted patients who were at least 18, 18 years of age, primarily because that's the population in which ranibizumab has been studied for other indications, and also because this study involved intravitreal injections in the clinic. So they had to be at least 18. They had to have a history of non-infectious uveitis, we did want the inflammation to be controlled for a minimum of two months to ensure that that strategy of controlling inflammation had really been tried. And we used the standardization of uveitis nomenclature uh, criteria to define controlled inflammation. And by that, I mean grade 0 to 0.5 plus anterior chamber cells and less than or equal to 0.5 plus vitreous haze. So that's a minimal amount of inflammation in the anterior chamber and the vitreous. They had to have that for at least two months. We also wanted them, of course, to have macular edema. Um, and they had to have that for two months at least, and the center point thickness had to be at least 300 microns. We also didn't want patients who were uh, having all of their medications changed. So we allowed patients to stay on whatever immunosuppressive agents they were on. But in order to ensure that people weren't changing naturally, uh, we, we really wanted to see stable inflammation as well as stable other medications for two months prior to enrollment in our study. Um, and finally, they all had to have tried at least one steroid injection. And it didn't have to be intravitreal, although almost all of them had, but we requested at least one periocular injection, again, at least two months prior to study enrollment. Um, most of our patients of note had really had multiple steroid in um, injections, although we only required one. Um, and then other criteria were that they had to have 2040 to 2400 vision. Um, those, are the, those are the pertinent inclusion criteria. What were your main outcome measures and what were your findings? Okay, so our main, our, so we had our, our predefined, our, our pre-specified primary outcome was the mean change in best spectacle corrected visual acuity from baseline to three months. Um, and then, of course, we were, uh, this paper that we published followed them up to six months, although we are following them longer. So a, pre, so a secondary outcome was their change in acuity at six months, but our primary outcome was at three months. And then other secondary outcomes were to look in the mean change in OCT central retinal thickness. Again, looking at the change from baseline to three months and baseline to six months. We also wanted to look at the number of reinjections needed between zero and six months. And what were your findings? For the primary outcome, which was visual acuity, um, we found a, it was 
something that actually was fairly surprising for us because we didn't necessarily expect that in, in this study. Um, so I should mention, we, we, this is a small study. We had seven patients enroll, um, and we found that from baseline to three months and also at six months because it remained stable from three months to six months, there was an average gain of 13 letters. This was a standardized visual acuity measured by a visual acuity examiner on an ETDRS chart. And so that's approximately a two and a half line improvement at three months, um, and that was maintained at six months. Um, and it, as far as what visions that translate to, so at baseline, the mean vision was about 2100. It ranged from 2050 to 2400. And at three months, we had improved to 63 letters, which is the 13-letter gain. And that translates to a vision of 2020 to 2250. And that stayed stable through six months. So in terms of vision, that was a statistically significant improvement in visual acuity from baseline to three months and baseline to six months. Now as far as OCT, so central retinal and central subfield thickness as measured by OCT, we also found a corresponding uh, statistically significant improvement in um, macular edema as, as measured by OCT. So specifically, we went from uh, mean OCT thickness of 555 microns um, at baseline to 211 microns at three months and 213 microns at six months. So we're seeing a lot of, we saw a lot of stability between three months and six months with both vision and, and um, OCT's central retinal thickness. I should say that in this um, group that we were looking at, we didn't have eligibility criteria saying that they, you know, they had to have uveitis for a certain period of time, but I should say that given that this was a proof of concept study, most of the patients that came into the study had uveitis a long time and had long-standing macular edema. So we didn't expect to see a visual acuity improvement. We were more looking to see if they were going to have an anatomical uh, improvement on OCT. We were actually very surprised when we saw and excited by the fact that there was a pretty remarkable visual acuity improvement. How many patients needed retreatment and how many retreatments? And what criteria were used to determine the need for retreatment? So that's 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 a that's a great question and an important one. Um, so in our protocol, every patient got three initial injections. So at baseline, one month, and at two months. And we were following the way that ranibizumab has been used in macular degeneration in some of the early trials. So we did three, and then what we did is go on to a PRN protocol where you know we see them every month and they get OCT thickness. And if their central retinal thickness was at least had increased by 50 microns from their lowest prior measurement, then, then they would get a reinjection. So out of our seven patients, four patients needed retreatment within the six-month time period. Two patients had, actually three patients had no reinjections after the initial, after the initial three. Um, one patient, um, sorry, three patients required one injection beyond the initial, initial three, and then one patient required two additional injections. You've made it clear from your data that the benefit, uh, as per your study protocol, persisted six months. 
my, my, my question is this. When you give an individual injection, how long does the benefit from that particular injection last? Right. So I think that's really variable. And that's something we're continuing to look at because we're following these patients long term. So I think that's one of the things I'm very interested in. I think we think the drug works and it's successful. The question is, is how often are you going to have to re-inject? How long is the benefit going to last? And as as we go on, so, so within the six-month period, you can see that there were a couple of patients that didn't need any injection, meaning that their macular edema was completely... Um, completely had had completely resolved after the initial injections and so they had gone on for three four months up to the six month period because the last injection is at two months right zero one and two so they had gone four months without having any recurrence of their macular edema so I would say that their treatment benefit was still persistent four months after the last injection however for others you see that the improvement lasts a month and that they would need a re-injection a month later um, I can just comment a little bit out of the scope of the paper, but now that I'm following patients further along, we continue to see that where some patients can go even six months or longer with a treatment benefit with no recurrence of macular edema, while others have to be injected every one to two months. Nisha, were any adverse events observed? No, not other than a transient subconjunctival hemorrhage, you know, at the site of injection, which was really not of consequence, I would say. But we did not see, we did not have any uh, increase, any uveitis flare-ups, which was a major, not a major, but it, it was a concern of ours, given that we weren't sure whether... Uh, potentially giving an anti-VEGF agent could be pro-inflammatory, uh, but we did not see any any recurrence of inflammation, and we didn't have any other um, negative or adverse e- events such as macular ischemia, or retinal detachment, hemorrhage, or endophthalmitis. So we were fortunate um, in that sense. The benefit of an anti-VEGF agent suggests the ongoing production of VEGF if inflammation has been suppressed, why is VEGF still being produced? So I think that's that's a I think that's a great question and it's a difficult one because it's been something that we always debate about that why when you control inflammation do you still have macular edema? So I, I can speculate, but I don't think we have we have a definite answer on that. So um, inflammatory mediators, you know, well one thought is that we know that in uveitis even though you control inflammation, that the inflammatory mediators can stick around a long time, especially in the vitreous since it may be a reservoir. And that's actually been part of the thinking of why some people support vitrectomy because they think you physically remove all the inflammatory mediators that can hang around a long time. But that might be part of it, that even though we don't see new cells coming into the eye and that appears quiet, there may be the old inflammatory mediator sticking around and propagating the cycle of of vascular permeability. The other possibility is that even though we don't see cells, you know, that's just the limit of what we can see in the eye, there may be sub subclinical inflammation going on. I mean, that's something I'm always suspicious of, is whether we need to be even more aggressive with that because perhaps there's limits in what we can see in the anterior chamber in the vitreous, and there may be ongoing inflammation at some level, and hence you have all these inflammatory mediators continuing to come in. Another possibility is just that you just have persistent leaky leaky uh, blood vessels, and even though you control inflammation up to a certain level, you have some permanent damage, and so inflammatory medi- mediators will continue to come in. VEGF is an angiogenic factor, but it's also a potent vascular permeability factor. 
since neovascularization is not an important factor in these cases, I assume that it is in its antipermeability role that ranibizumab produces its benefit. Yes, exactly. I would agree with that fully. So, you know, I think that we think that VEGF both promotes angiogenesis as well as well as vascular vascular permeability. And yes, we, we don't think neovascularization is an issue in uveitic macular edema. So when we use this medicine, this drug, ranibizumab, we're really targeting its role in uh, vascular permeability. You mentioned that for the patients from the study that the baseline findings were pretty chronic. Since chronic CME can produce long-standing visual loss, which persists beyond anatomical resolution of the CME, how late is too late to intervene? Well, in my opinion, never. I, especially after conducting this study and seeing some of our results, I, I was really surprised. When patients came in with this and we were enrolling them, I you know, really tried to not get their hopes up too high because I, I didn't know, because some of them had 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 uveitis. Uh, for instance, we had a 22-year-old girl who had had macular edema for years, for 84 months, so for years and years. And, you know, her vision was poor. It was 2,400. And even in her case with, with our treatments, she improved to 2,200, which is significant. And one may not think, you know, that's not 2020 vision. So I'm, I'm not saying that people who've had long-standing edema, I don't think their potential is 2020, but even a couple of line improvement, um, which we didn't think we would necessarily get, you know, we, we saw that in the patients who even had this the, the longest. And that really tells me that you never know those photoreceptors that have been on stretch, you never know what they still have. Uh, the capability of doing, and some of them may be able to perform better if you just get the edema down. And so I, I would say that not only do we find the improvement, you know, when we measure their vision, but patients really notice a, a difference in their quality of life. So I think even patients who've had this long-standing edema and poor vision, it's at least worth it to try. I would say that if you don't see any improvement after a reasonable period of months or a few treatments, I, I wouldn't force the issue, but I think it's worth it to try in everybody. Nisha, I'm going to ask you a question that deals with costs and that may be targeted more to listeners outside of the U.S. Since this is an off-label use of ranibizumab, would there be any disadvantage to using bevacizumab instead? So, so that's a really, really good question, and I think another important one. And I I didn't really, you know, get into it in the paper because the point was to really see how this drug worked, but I, I can comment on it. And again, I, I think that it's hard to, to know for sure what the, what the you know, what, um, what the right answer is. I don't think there is a right answer. I, I think there's so many issues that go into the decision of using ranibizumab versus bevacizumab. So, you know, I use ranibizumab because I had it available to me free of cost from the investigator-initiated program at Genentech. And I, I was reassured by the fact that the drug had been used in so many patients and that the safety data were known. Um, and so that, that was why, because I had it available. But in general, I, I don't have, you know, personally, I, I actually don't have a strong feeling on whether one drug will perform better than the other. You know, in theory, you could you you could say that for macular edema, you want a molecule that's going to penetrate deep into the retina. But I think there's evidence now that both drugs are able to able to do this. Um, 
I also think there's some concerns about bevacizumab because we don't have the greatest safety data yet in a large number of patients. We don't really know for sure. So I'm actually very interested in the results of the NEI trial um, comparing ranibizumab to bevacizumab. I think that's going to be the best evidence we have about whether these drugs are comparable and also whether the safety profile, that's my main concern, is going to be similar. You know, my gut feeling is that the drugs are going to be comparable, but we'll see. You know, I don't really know. So until then, I really think that they have a similar mechanism of action, and I would say that practitioners if uh, should feel comfortable using whatever they have available to them. Um, there have been two small studies looking at bevacizumab for uveitic macular edema. Those were retrospective, and they weren't they weren't done in a standardized way, so it's a little bit hard to compare them to our study. They did find less improvement, although they they found improvement in the central retinal thickness, so improvement in macular edema that was transient, but less improvement than we found with ranibizumab. And they also, although they found a visual acuity improvement, it, it wasn't a significant improvement. Um, it's hard to compare because, again, the studies are very different, but I do, I do think that they found a trend towards better outcomes with it. So I would say in general we're looking at both of these medications potentially having a use. Nisha, outside of the context of this study, what do you do in your own practice with patients like these? So foremost, I... I am adamant about controlling the inflammation aggressively. I really believe that that in uveitis, that's the key to preventing complications such as macular edema, and that's our best chance at also controlling macular edema is to control all visible inflammation. So I do that with oral steroids, steroid injections, um, and immunosuppressive agents. And I will try, you know, multiple agents sometimes in order to control inflammation. Um, However, if I do all that and they still have persistent macular edema, I almost always will try a periocular, and in my case, I I like the posterior subtenons injection of triamcinolone acetonide. I think it's relatively safe in most patients and can work. You know, I don't think it's as potent as an intravitreal injection, but it has less risk. And if it works, I think that's really great because it's easy for the patient. It's a lot easier than doing an intravitreal injection. Um, And I sometimes will even repeat more than one periocular injection. If I fail that, then I move on. And what I, and and I traditionally have been moving on to intravitreal triamcinolone, but given that I still have, um, I still have, the capability of providing patients with ranibizumab through this uh, investigator-initiated program, I will offer patients either bevacizumab or ranibizumab. I will tell them it's off-label, but that we've looked at it and we'll give that choice to them. And then it's really up to the patient whether they want to go on with intravitreal steroid injection or intravitreal anti-VEGF agent. I will say that we also have patients who have had bad complications with steroids, including having a big steroid response where their pressure goes up. And for those patients, I, I think uh, doing anti-VEGF injections have really been um, a great help because it's another option for them that's not as dangerous um, in terms of their pressure. So um, I still offer this to patients. But in the end, you know, you have to talk to the patients about the pluses and minuses of each treatment, what we know and what we don't know about them, and then it's really their choice. Nisha, is there anything that you'd like to add? So I, 
just want to also take a minute to just acknowledge my co-author. So, so this study was something that I had thought of, but I wouldn't have been able to implement it without help. And my two co-authors um, and, and people who were very, very critical to implementing the study were Kevin Hong, who was my study coordinator, um, and then Selena Lee, who's an optometrist at the Proctor uh, Foundation, and she was instrumental in doing all of the visual acuity protocols and, and also performing the, the OCTs on all of our patients. Nisha Acharya, thank you so much. Oh, it's, you know, my, my pleasure. This was really fun. Thank you. Nisha Acharya is Assistant Professor and Director of the Uvieta Service at the Proctor Foundation at the University of California, San Francisco, in San Francisco, California. Her paper, Ranibizumab for Refractory Uveitis-Related Macular Edema, appears in the August 2009 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Acharya or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.